because whether someone has an issue with focus or not, musicians learn a quality of focus that I'm telling you, most people don't. They just don't. Uh, their, their lives don't require it. And um, most people probably never even thought about it, but musicians think about it a lot because the quality of focus that that is demanded of us is um, is extreme. So teaching that at a at a basic level is is a level of focus that again most people don't think about, so they don't particularly teach it. But we do teach that, so that's extremely useful. Again, whether someone has focus issues or not. Welcome to String Sessions, the Music Parent Podcast. I'm your host, Joanna Farrar, and it is my pleasure to introduce our second guest on the show, New Jersey Symphony principal second violinist, Francine Stork. Fran is a graduate of Oberlin College Conservatory of Music, and she won a position with the New Jersey Symphony just after college, at the time, in 1980, becoming its youngest member. And only a few years after that, she became the principal second violinist of the orchestra. She has decades of experience as an orchestral performer and leader, and she has also been teaching students of a wide variety of ages and experience levels from the moment she left college. It was a real joy to speak with Fran in this episode, as we touched on some things I think are absolutely crucial. The impact of private lessons and music studies on confidence and focus, the joy of seeing progress through our practice, and so much more. This is only our second episode, so if you enjoy it, I really hope you'll take the time to subscribe, share it with friends, and leave us a good review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. We have a lot of exciting things planned for the show, including practice challenges, Q&As with artists, and much more. So stay tuned. You can also check out our website at musicparentpodcast.com. Enjoy the show. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I'm really excited to have this conversation today. And um, it's it's a pleasure to not only work with you, but now to be able to talk with you and, and have this conversation go live to many people. So can I just ask you first to tell us a little bit about your background and, you know, how you came to have the, the musical life that you do now? Well, I feel so fortunate that in a certain way it happened to me. Um, most people their big question about a, a professional musician is, did you come from a musical family? And yes, I absolutely did. And I'm the third child. So I was already immersed by the time I got going in my life. And for example, my parents' extremely small record collection included two things that I had committed to memory before I ever saw a violin in person. One was a record of the Bach violin concertos, the A minor, the E major, and the Bach double. I knew those things backwards and forwards as a very young child. The other recording that I absolutely loved had on one side the Debussy string quartet and on the other side the Ravel string quartet. So this was my, I want to say, formative music. And um, besides singing hymns in church, which taught me sight reading and sight singing. So um, that was a, a great musical background to the fact that uh, a relative gifted my family a violin. And the moment I saw it, I said, I want, <laughs> I want to do that. And so this is why I say I was, I lucked into it. Uh, and I started at the very late age of nine. Uh, most unusual for someone that becomes professional. Usually it's three or four, sometimes five, but I was nine. So um, again, that's late, but I, of course, caught on very quickly. And um, my my first teacher liked to tell the story that as soon as she showed me how adding a finger would add a note and taking a finger away would, you know, take a note away, I said to her, oh, I get it, and started to play songs that I knew. So I, I did get off to a rather uh, quick start. And then um, and then I found myself thrust into situations early. For example, that summer, I got the privilege to attend a, a chamber music camp that was for kids age 
12 to 18, but I was nine. But they tested me for it and I got in and I don't know if I, I'm tall, you know, maybe they, maybe they thought I could disguise as a 12 year old or something. But anyway, there I was playing chamber music all summer with kids that were a lot older. And I remember in particular, there was a 16 year old cellist that I just thought was amazing. And I remember thinking, wow, I want to be like her when I get older, you know, and that was very motivational for a nine year old. So um, it did, it did push me further. And then in high school, um, I was in a family where we were expected to have jobs when we were in high school. And but my job turned out to be I played in a professional uh, chamber orchestra. So I got to do that all through high school. And that was amazing because I was not only expected to perform on a professional level, but also behave as a professional and learn the ins and outs of that, keeping a calendar, for example, um, in high school. So, uh, yeah, I, I, um, I enjoyed that early life very much. Uh, all the playing was, was uh, part of what I remember as a happy childhood. That is really wonderful. And it's, it's interesting that you came from such a musical family and you had music around you, obviously, from a very young age, and it was a part of everything that you grew up with. And yet you also have that experience of starting at a slightly later later age, which I imagine for, for teaching would give you, it, it seems to me then you would not, because as you said, that's rather unusual. So to be able to then relate to some kids that maybe start a little bit later, I would say, possibly gives you a little more experience with that because you know what is possible. It's clearly not an age limited thing in the way that some other teachers might think. <laughs> Many professional violinists can't remember when they weren't violinists and I can. And it's a, it sounds funny, but it's an interesting distinction. And um, I also remember learning certain things that a lot of my peers knew how to do before they remembered how they learned that. So um, yeah, it does, it does make a little bit of a difference here and there. Yeah, yeah, yeah that is really interesting. So for the, the students um, that you teach, I mean, obviously, you know, you are a, a professional per performing artist with the symphony and you keep a very busy schedule with that. What is the age range of students that you tend to work with and kind of like how did your studio get started? Did you immediately start teaching when you were working professionally or is it something that you kind of added later? <laughs> yeah, um, well, teaching began immediately because I was, I guess because I was a working professional in high school, um, I, by the time I graduated college, I was, when word got out that I was done, you know, being out of town, I was in Oberlin at the conservatory and, when it was known, became known that I had graduated, people reached out to me and asked me to, I mean, I was in Manhattan at the time, I moved uh, straight to Manhattan, but, but I was, uh, someone reached out and said, could, if I bring you to Princeton on Saturday, will you come down and teach and I'll get you some other students too. And I want you to, you know, teach in my home and then I'll, well, I, I mean, they made me an offer I couldn't refuse. So I did get um, pulled down to to Princeton, my hometown, um, to begin teaching right off the bat. But I didn't have time for, a lot. I just did the Saturdays and then I had to make it back to um, play with the symphony on, on Saturday evening. Um, I did in fact get into the New Jersey Symphony my first year out of college. So after having spent the entire year subbing with the orchestra, which, um, at that point was 32 weeks and then they had auditions in the spring. So anyway, it was always about the symphony, but I was doing this teaching on Saturday. So I kept that up for quite a while until I actually moved out of Manhattan and came to New Jersey. And then I started teaching in New Jersey, but you know, at home, not commuting to do the teaching, which was a little crazy. Well, anyway, so my students um, have always been sort of, uh, what I consider the typical age range of violinists, which is a few in elementary school. It kind of grows uh, bigger in uh, junior high, so generally more uh, junior high, and then um, some high school, and it tends to thin out toward 
junior, especially senior year when they get busy with other things. So there's sort of a swell around the junior high age. That said, I've had students literally in their 80s. And I, my youngest student was three. And I, I like to tell people, and especially parents, that um, this particular three-year-old, um, her parents were professional musicians. And they knew, of course, in fact, violinists, they knew what was involved in learning a string instrument. And so that three-year-old took an hour lesson. And uh, she did very well and progressed very fast. But those parents weren't afraid to, to book an hour lesson for a three-year-old, and they were very wise because uh, it takes a little time to communicate to a three-year-old. And um, they're, as we all know, equally as capable of learning a lot as you are when you're older. So we got a lot done, and uh, she's still at it doing very well. Yeah, that is very interesting because I think that there is sometimes that, that bias or, or perhaps, you know, an understandable concern that like by having something be long for someone who's very young, it either, you know, maybe too tiring for them or they won't get a lot out of it. But I I've also completely agree. There's oftentimes those young ages, they are like sponges and it, it takes a little longer sometimes, but it's, it also means that they can get so much more out of it. <laughs> That's a beautiful thing. Yeah, it works very well. The only time it doesn't work is if you literally don't know how to talk to a child, but yeah. I mean, I'm a parent of two, so, you know, I've been there and done that a little bit. Mm -hmm. yeah. With my so, eight-year-old, it's interesting to note that this was a, a man whose hands were big and thick and kind of gnarled. I mean, he had, his fingers were a mess. Let's just say the opposite of good violin fingers. In fact, to be honest, there's no way no way on earth this man was ever going to play a true half step. Not going to happen. But he loved music and he, he played when he was younger. So he had a certain amount of skill. He wasn't learning from scratch. And he loved it so much and he found it so enriching in his life. And we had a great time. And when he would do really well, I would say, uh, you know, through sometimes laughter, sometimes tears, I would say, well, something like that. That was close. And that cracked him up. I mean, this was a professional lawyer he had his own firm you know and um he was he loved being on a different kind of level in this in this pursuit so anyway it was all about just the joy of it just the joy of it and this brings me to another point which is that i've always just taken students I've never aud um, auditioned for students. I take students as they are. And if they want to um, pursue the very highest standard in the shortest amount of time, that's the expectation I will bring to their lesson. And if they want to have a lot of fun in school orchestra and perhaps youth orchestra or do better in the next uh, seating audition, I'm their advocate. I'm all about it. And if they'd rather skip that stuff and um, and just have fun, something to relieve themselves from their other activities, that's great too. Um, I, I really don't judge on that because I feel that um, one can, the possibilities for what one can get from uh, studying music are so endless and so rich and uh, can contribute to your life in so many ways. And as a child, contribute to your development in so many ways that um, I feel like it's almost not my business why someone comes to me, but once they're there, I'm gonna find out who they are and how they can most be served by music. And um, it's been my joy to do that and to pursue it from that angle. I couldn't agree more. I think that that is a very also, um, healthier way of approaching um, both teaching and learning, I think, within this, because there are, is still sort of a, a bias towards like looking for the next, you know, baby Mozart or something like that, which is great and it's lovely. And you and I became professionals and lots of other people become professionals and that's wonderful. But it's also about 
the fact that this is just a thing that is a creative expression and a joy and benefits kids and adults for many different reasons, whether or not they're going to play Paganini or not. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And for parents, you know, uh, sometimes I've had students where some, I'll be honest with you, sometimes I think the parents welcome the hour where their child is getting um, personal attention in, in some professional hands, no matter what it is, um, and that maybe they'll learn something that they might not learn in a normal context like school, and maybe that parent will just benefit from the hour of relief of dealing with a difficult child. And um, I've had quite a few students where uh, my sense immediately was that what they had to gain from me had much more to do with things that weren't necessarily musical. But of course, music is a perfect medium in which to learn uh, some of these things that are harder to put one's finger on, um, developmental things, um, behavioral things, issues of focus, um, issues of self-confidence. Um, I've, I've dealt with a lot of unusual situations. I don't want to say for me they've become usual, but I've, I've been quite, I've gotten quite comfortable with some um, very extreme behaviors and, and situations uh, that I've dealt with in the context of a violin lesson very successfully. And that, that really warms my heart as well. I, I love it for that equally as much as if one of my students makes it into all state, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And that is a very unusual thing um, for, I think for, for kids, especially, you know, in, in school context, it's, it's wonderful. There are so many wonderful teachers out there doing amazing work with students in classrooms. But the idea that we come from a tradition where things are done kind of in that apprenticeship model, where you do have one-on-one -on -one time and it's a requirement of the art really, but that's also a blessing because then we get to know these kids. And as you've said, you've had so many experiences of connecting with them on a different level, which can be a blessing for families and for the kids in unexpected ways as well. Yeah. That's, that's a really wonderful thing. Yeah. And it's a chance for that child who they always know on some level that they're different in some way. It's an, it's an opportunity for that child to see themselves differently than they've been able to see themselves because they're having a different kind of success in a different context than, than what is possible in a school or normal social setting. So that can be very, very confidence building for the, yeah. For the yeah. And let's face it, whether a child has particular difficulties or not, and obviously most do not, um, it's that confidence. I guess the most, the most exciting thing for me uh, in working with, with kids is um, the building of their confidence. Who couldn't use some more confidence? Most adults I know could use some more confidence, but for kids growing up and, um, and parents know how fast kids grow up. So each year that you have them, even if it's a few years, that's a critical point in their life, whichever few years it is. But um, to, to spend that time building confidence, what better use of time is there? Um, with the possible exception of learning to focus. Because whether someone has an issue with focus or not, musicians learn a quality of focus that I'm telling you, most people don't they just don't uh their their lives don't require it and um most people probably never even thought about it but musicians think about it a lot because the quality of focus that that is demanded of us is um is extreme so teaching that at a at a basic level is is a level of focus that again most people don't think about so they don't particularly teach it, but we do teach that. 
So that's extremely useful, again, whether someone has focus issues or not. So that's, um, that's very rewarding when you see a kid making progress in that area, especially when they particularly need it. Um, but, but I'll tell you, ultimately, it's the confidence building that's so um, enriching to me and um, joyful for everyone involved. Yeah, absolutely. And and with our the modern day culture kind of encouraging people's attention and focus to be more and more split, I think that it becomes even more important because it is so different. It's wildly different from a lot of other forms of focus and concentration. Um, yeah, <laughs> that is a very important thing. So when you when you have someone come to the studio or new students or new parents coming to your studio, what do you feel are some of the misconceptions that you most often um, feel people have about violin lessons or, you know, taking lessons or being in your studio specifically? Or are there things that you're like, ah, that's always a thing I have to address pretty, pretty quickly? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that's a, that's a few. I know. There's, okay. there's many different ways that could go, either with the students or the parents or both. Or <laughs> Right. Well, I think um, one one misconception is that string instruments are like other instruments <laughs> in terms of learning. They're not. Um, it is harder. It is more complex. Um, violinists and pianists love to tease each other about, no, mine's harder, mine's harder. And, um, and I, I have a great story to end the conversation because I taught uh, twin boys of a of a professional pianist, and um, and she sat in on lessons because she was going to help them um, practice. And it took about a month. She kept quiet for about a month. But about a month or a month and a half into lessons, she said to me, "I never thought I would say this, but the violin is so much harder than the piano." And I said, "I told you so." But we just laugh about it because we know that, so what? So that just means one needs to be patient. One needs to be patient and the signs of progress aren't always as obvious as parents might hope they would be. So I, um, I like to really try to show parents, first of all, what are the attributes um, that are so useful to students of violin that their children possess, such as they have a good ear, for example. Now, that's something people throw that expression around a lot. But on violin, it's absolutely critical <laughs> that you have a good ear. Um, you need to be able to distinguish between smaller things than most people would ever consider caring about in their life. So... Um, yeah, good ear is absolutely helpful. And if you can let parents know that their children possess that, um, then that that's going to help them tremendously. Then they're encouraged that, oh, progress can happen um, where they might not notice or, or understand that progress was happening. Otherwise, another thing is simply when, when someone is smart. I mean, I've had many students that weren't necessarily um, as bright as is particularly helpful. But if a, if a student is particularly bright in the right way, my goodness, that's very helpful. And when you tell parents, you know, they catch on so quickly because not only they have a third good quality, a physical affinity for the, or for the um, instrument, but to be very bright and sort of catch on to concepts quickly, which matters because Again, we have to imagine what the music's going to sound like. Um, it's not laid out in front of us like a piano keyboard. Um, we have to imagine that there's more than one, for example, C. <laughs> Whereas on a piano, you can see that's a C, that's a C, that's a C. We have to kind of imagine that there such a thing is true. Um, anyway, so I like to let the parents and the kids know what the attributes that they possess already are that are being helpful to them and it it helps them to know that um that therefore progress is happening and will happen um 
other pitfalls, goodness, this gets into sort of one of your other questions. Um, I, I've mentioned before that I tend to have a lot of junior high school students. I, and it, I'm so grateful, frankly, that I find them or they find me um, at that stage because um, the violin, okay, I use the Suzuki books. I don't teach Suzuki method, but I like the Suzuki books because they, they, um, they, they progress at a, at a quick speed, which is why they don't use them in school. They progress too quickly and not everyone can progress that fast, but in a private setting, obviously that's what you want to have happen. Well, so I, I guess I'm speaking mostly to violinists and people familiar with the, with the drill. So I just want to say that I've always felt, you know, volume one, two, and three, you can more or less teach yourself. Like if you understand how the violin works, you can get through one, two, three. Obviously you're going to do it much better and much more quickly with guidance. But personally, when it comes to volume four, which brings kids around usually to junior high school in most cases, I've taught a long time. Volume four is not taught correctly in my view. And it's my favorite thing to teach because I teach it correctly in my view. Um, and here's the difference. Volume one, two, and three is all about where do my fingers go, particularly in first position. Um, volume four, of course, we're, we're getting into positions now, but um, it turns out that the hardest part of playing the violin is the right hand. And not a lot of people teach bow technique the proper way. Now, uh, parents alert, the reason I believe that mo uh, many uh, violin teachers don't is because of pressure from the parents that they want their kids at that very moment in their life when they're now in uh, orchestra, youth orchestra, starting to compete, starting to compare. Um, it's that moment where they want to see progress that looks like that. And that is uh, counter uh, productive one. The kind of progress you need to make right in that moment is even a little bit like that, because now you need to learn the fine art of manipulating this very sophisticated stick that does so many things. Um, and so the pitfall is not understanding the proper use of bow. It's a pitfall for parents, it's a pitfall for teachers. And unfortunately, where students get caught in this is that they do progress bowing like they have ever since they picked it up. They progress until they hit a wall. And now what that wall looks like is, now they're in orchestra looking around and it seems like they, they feel like they're out on a limb with no net. They feel that more is being demanded of them than they really know. They start to become, in that critical junior high moment, very insecure. They, they can sense it. They know something's wrong with their playing, but they're not sure what because they have so many skills and they can play so much music. But they know that there are certain techniques now, if they happen to be in youth orchestra, especially where the, the level varies a lot, but veers toward higher. Um, it, it, things are being asked of them that they're not, they think they can do, but they, they're not good at it. They, they don't know how to get better. They haven't really been taught. Anyway, it's a terrible place as a student to find oneself. And it's something that kids tend to get quiet about. They don't like to talk about it, but they notice it. So I love finding kids at or before that, that phase where, um, where I applaud every single skill that they come to me with and show them that there's no such thing as like um, something that they don't know how to do. The reason that they're having trouble is because nobody ever told them, well, you can't, you can't do that here. You have to do that 
here. Or it, you're doing that here. It would be so much easier if you would do it here. I mean, every inch of the bow is for a different purpose. And if no one's ever told you that before, you're going to have trouble where you don't need to. And once you become um, acquainted with every inch of your bow, oh my goodness, not only are you going to be better, but the confidence that that builds, you know, and I remind kids once they learn the skills, you know, if you ever catch yourself having trouble, just stop for a second and ask yourself, which inch am I using and which inch should I use? Because you know the answer, but you got to catch yourself. So now you adjust to there. Now you have no problems. So um, it's the thrill of getting to know that boat inch by inch that is um, my most um, it's actually, I consider a gift of mine that I, I enjoy most sharing. It's most, it's the technical thing that I enjoy teaching the most because it makes such a difference. Again, getting all the way down to confidence, uh, not to mention tone and, and every other thing. Um, yes. So yeah, that's a, that is the pitfall and it's the one I, I really enjoy addressing the most. Yes. I can't really speak for violas or cellists. Both of us are violinists, so I don't want to speak for other instrument classes or double bass, but I'm sure that, you know, all of us string players, we know that it, there's so much about those pitfalls of the bow that, like you said, uh, sometimes it's not addressed or it hasn't been the right time or the right teacher, and that can be very, very, you know, critical, absolutely critical. I think, as you were saying, then, that does there's always that feeling of, I think in any art form, I remember when I took up martial arts, I had the same thing where like the beginning stages, you can not get away with, that's the wrong turn of phrase, but you really do make an enormous amount of progress. But there in every art form is that point where you're gonna hit a wall. And for kids, especially when you're young, it's hard to be able to maybe talk about that or say that out loud because you don't quite know if it's you. And then of course, if you're dealing with the self-confidence issues of being a young person, you don't want to draw attention to it so then parents or kids or you know get caught in this little trap there so yeah that's very crucial and by speaking of these things aloud to a young person and saying do you feel this way do you feel that way they feel seen and heard and understood and and that lays the groundwork immediately for the fact that the studio is a safe space to make mistakes to learn learn from scratch things they feel they should already know but you know between you me and the four walls who cares let's get it right you know and um and that's the that's the uh the critical mood you want to establish in in your studio so that um immediately they uh, kids come to understand parents need to figure out that the kid's going to take a step back before they take two more forward but kids immediately understand that their their um, needs are being addressed and that they're in a safe space to do it. Absolutely. I think that a lot of this does have to do with that good communication is I think also what you're talking about. If the, if the studio is a safe space, that also means kids can communicate with you as a teacher and then you can help address things with parents so that they understand what's really going on, you know, with their, with the progress or why certain pieces are being learned or not learned at a given time. But that takes open communication, which is sometimes also not encouraged in our culture, I feel. So that is, that is very wonderful that your studio does that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, for, are there, I, I frequently, I feel like uh, one of the questions that I have had some parents ask me, although maybe not as much as, as people would expect, is the, the age-old question of how much do you feel it's appropriate for parents to be um, involved with, you know, sort of motivating their kids to practice? How do you help parents navigate that age-old question of, well, I, I need them to make progress. Obviously, we both know you have to work hard if you want to see results, but then there is that push and pull of motivation and how do you sort of address that <laughs> with kids? Well, I, first of all, you know, I, I, of course, the question that parents ask very often is, 
and usually they like to ask it in front of their child, of course, how much should my child practice? Because parents, you know, don't forget, parents want to be seen in this context generally as good parents. You know, they want to, not only they want to support their child, every parent does, but they want to, they want the, um, assurance that they've properly supported their child. They're in, a, in an area that they probably don't know a lot about. And they, they're hoping with a little insecurity themselves that they're getting that part right. So they're, um, they're wanting to support in the right way. And they think that the, the way they're supposed to do that is um, forcing, but they don't want to force like, get encouraging their child to practice every day without fail for X number of hours or an hour or whatever it is. So I, I like to reassure parents, you know, that this is a, this is on me a lot. It's not so much on them and they can a little bit relax about it because I'm going to, especially over time, take this out of their hands. They don't need to worry so much about being um, the best parent in this regard. Um, now, obviously, the parental help at, at the very early ages is critical and, and very important, and I will show them what to do, basically, as much of what I do in a lesson as possible if they can emulate, and then if they can bring the, the child as often as possible, that, that helps also. But we're talking about you know, a, a kid, not a, not a child. Like we're talking about a kid that, you know, does for the most part their own homework. Um, so what, what should the parent's expectation of themselves be? So again, I try to take that off of their shoulders and, and let them know that I'm not judging them uh, for what they are or are not doing to or for their child in this regard. I think that's a big relief for some parents. So there's that in the first place. But in the second place, I, I wasn't, I didn't actually learn how to practice. Now this is gonna sound funny, but keep in mind, obviously as a professional, we have a different concept of how to practice than we did probably as young people. But how to practice, which I'm interpreting in my musician brain as how to get the absolute most done in the absolute least amount of time, because that's life, and so much is expected of us. Um, how to actually do that, make that happen, I didn't actually figure out until I was in the middle of college. So was I taught how to practice? Well, I mean, maybe on a kid level, but now that I really know how to practice, I feel like that was never taught at a young age. And so I, I like to think that this is primarily what I teach, how to practice, so that every lesson becomes a lesson in how to practice the thing we're working on now, this week. So, a, a kid should never walk out of my studio confused about what they're supposed to do. And if they do it the way I tell them to do it, and now here's where I'll turn to the parent, it's not about how, how long they spend doing it. They just need to do it. And not once, but at least three times, okay? At least three. Um, because once you might get lucky, twice you might still be lucky. By the time you can do something three times in a row, it wasn't an accident. You did that. But now in a row is critical. If you made mistakes in between, I got to start over. So because you need three in a row. So how, what's the fastest way to get to three in a row? Well, you better start slowly because you're gonna spend a lot of time fixing the mistakes you initially make unless you start slowly. So slow and then stack them up. Was it perfect? Okay. Now was it good? Okay, and while you're at it, don't just repeat, but even if it went well, but what could be better? 
Did you listen? If you didn't know what could be better, that one that doesn't count. You have to start start over again and now tell me what could be better. You're like you have to listen to yourself. So I mean, how to practice is what I teach in every single lesson and it varies depending completely upon what we are studying in that lesson. So that takes the pressure right off the parents. And I say, look, roughly, if you have an hour lesson, roughly, I'd like to think you should spend an hour every day uh, practicing, reviewing, and making sure that you do that review as we discussed, as we actually uh, practiced in the lesson. Um, but that's a rough estimate. Life happens. And also some days are missed. And then again, that's life. But I beg my students, please try not to miss practice. Do not skip practice the day after your lesson. Well, yes. Practice the next day, no matter what, because otherwise you lose a whole week. They forget the finer points of what we did in the lesson. And now we're just going to have to recap next week <laughs> instead of making progress. But I mean, I, if you know what life happens and this is a, it's a process, they have to learn these things. And I have infinite patience for that, but they are going to learn in the lesson as we continue to practice in the lesson. Yeah. Uh, they're going to learn what works and what doesn't and what works works so well that why wouldn't you repeat that at home so um and they also learn how quickly you can get so much better when you just break it down and slow down so you know all these skills are what i teach and so you know it's not about quantity parents it's about quality yeah it really is and that all goes back down to focus as we were talking about earlier because you can't do that kind of you know breaking things down effectively if there's no focus which is the other way that playing music helps the focus is that you have to in order to practice well it's it's the necessary base we work off of so that yeah. is yeah that's amazing and and that is so important. <laughs> That's beautiful. I think there's there's one last question I want to I want to ask you, um, which is a little bit different from some of my guests. Obviously, uh, you are in a unique situation that you are a principal player of of a section, and um, I wanted to. We've already touched on you know focus. We've talked uh, about the importance of learning an enormous amount of material quickly, um, the importance of confidence. You know, and I was just wondering if you could maybe speak to how um, you think about how your role as a as a leader within an orchestra impacts your teaching or if there are ways that you let's say you have a student who's going to step into a principal role in a youth orchestra or something like that what are some of the the things that you would give them as advice um, for those young people that are <laughs> looking to that well the biggest misconception about leadership in in uh, music is that you know people see a conductor giving the B right and so it's there's there's a communication that's happening like this and they somehow I feel like that visual image translates over to where people have a misconception that leadership has a lot to do with showing or telling uh, other people what to do um, whereas, especially in a professional situation, uh, mostly it's just about doing it. <laughs> because as kids learn, everybody knows there's some mysterious reason why um, it's just so much easier to play whatever it is you're working on when your teacher plays with you. Oh, let me let me play with you. Would you like that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So let's play it together. Now, for some reason, it just it's more it's easier. And we are, we're fish. We, we belong in a school of fish, birds in a flock, whatever you want to say about it, but it is easier in a group. Um, or somehow you, you get locked into a flow that carries you. It's, it's a remarkable experience. It's a little hard to talk about, but, um, it's, 
it's a feeling that you immediately sense, even from early days of, like I say, playing along with your teacher in a lesson, it's just easier. So in terms of leadership in a professional situation, if you can be that the bird that's in the front, they're flying the same as every other bird, but somehow they're setting up a wave of the air that everybody else is uh, benefiting from. If you can just put things where they go, everybody else can relax into doing the very same thing. So it's more a matter of personal responsibility uh, to, to be that one who's actually counting, not just listening and kind of knows when to come in, but who's actually counting to where other people can count on you. That's one, that, that's actually a huge thing because then you're going to have the physical um, security to, to, in a very relaxed and comfortable way, come in and set up again, this sort of wave of, of um, energy that everybody's going to join and will create a single sound instead of a bunch of <laughs> disparate sounds. So that's the main thing. It's responsibility, personal responsibility, and then self-assurance. And then people will trust that they, you seem to know what you're doing. They're going to trust that. And then you, you better make it true because otherwise they'll learn very quickly not to trust it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you have to have done the work to be able to do that. But then I, I really love that image of it as a wave because that really, I think it gives it the, the context of flow that is sometimes missing from how people think about leadership as, it, as being too sort of like uh, square edged when it really is much more you know moving than that, especially in music. So, <laughs> Yeah, that is I mean, if you have a good ear, you know the difference between harmony and dissonance. You know, even if it's just two people playing one note, are they are they bri literally vibrating together or are they fighting? Are they fighting? Um, it's the same in an orchestra, it, especially with our highly trained ears, obviously, to, to get the sound to just melt, melt in together, melt in together to make one sound. Um, the amount of preparation that's required to make that happen of course is extreme but once you're in that position just um creating that's the tricky part of the front it's creating the moment when everyone can melt in uh, without getting out of the moment so um yeah. yeah it's something that we all learn to do um in the trajectory of our of our uh, learning years, and of course, get better and better at all the time. Yeah. But this this brings up another thing, you know. The goal of in any art is when you reach the point where you don't even have to think about your medium anymore, and you're creating more about it's more about the waves, the harmony, the unity, the flow. And less about downbow, up, you know, um, frog tip uh, and fingerings. It's just okay. Let's let's get into this space together and just have an experience. And um, of course, that's the that's the intoxication of it. That's the that's the beauty of, uh, especially as a string player. That is what's so magical about being able not only to to um, fall in love with our instrument and the and the magical way that it works, but the um, the opportunity to play in a section. It doesn't sound glamorous, but the experience of it is is truly magical. hundred percent agree. Yeah. It is that experience of, of it all blending together into something that is beyond words. That is for sure. Um, that is, this has been really wonderful, Fran. I deeply appreciate your time. I'm sure our listeners have really enjoyed your expertise and your time as well. I definitely know, I'm, I'm sure we're going to have more of these conversations in the future with, with differing focuses. So I look forward to those.
And um, is there any place that people should go to for information, things that, that you want them to know about that you're, that you're doing? I mean, it's your studio, so I will like make sure that there's some contact information for you, um, you know, linked to this episode. I mean, email. Yeah, that's. Yeah, that'll be the best way. Perfect. That's the best way. That is lovely. All right. Thank, Thank you, you so much. much. Such a pleasure. Bye-bye. As you can probably tell, Fran and I definitely could have continued talking for a while. It was a very enjoyable conversation. I really especially appreciated what she had to say about how music helps young people develop skills and abilities to focus that are honestly rather unique in our modern world. Professional musicians and amateur musicians alike know that anytime you are aiming to make progress in music or learn a new piece, you need to first spend some time alone. You need to have the proper advice and the proper ability to focus and use that focused attention alone to practice and develop certain skills that you'll need in order to play a piece. Then you also, through that focused attention, need to have the confidence to be able to go to a rehearsal or to go to a jam session or a concert and use those skills and that focused attention that you've had to play with others, to create something that is beyond yourself. And when that feedback loop is going, of course, through the, the focus and the attention that you've placed on music, you then build confidence by having good experiences and having fun playing with others, which inspires you to go and focus more and continuously make progress with a skill that you know is sharing something beautiful about yourself with others. It's something that I really love about teaching. Clearly Fran really loves that about teaching as well. I think so many of us are inspired by that as professional musicians. And I hope that you enjoyed the conversation we had about it. There is certainly a lot more that could be said about that. I'll include Fran's contact information, her email address, in the show notes below. You can always reach out to me through the musicparentpodcast.com website or my personal website, joannaferrar.com. You can also find me on Instagram, where my handle is joannaferrar802. 802 is the Vermont area code. I live in Vermont, even though I play in the New Jersey Symphony. I love chatting with people about everything music-related. If you have questions for future guests, thoughts on the show, please just reach out. It's always lovely to talk to people. Whatever your journey with music, I hope you enjoy it, and I'll see you next time.